Welcome to Just Us for Justice from Consumer Attorneys of California. I'm J.G. Preston. CAOC encourages our members to suggest ideas for possible legislation that would protect California consumers in the civil justice system. Today, we're going to talk about one of those suggestions that became a bill that was signed into law this year, Senate Bill 652, which will ensure that only reliable expert testimony will be presented to juries. I'm joined by CAOC's Senior Legislative Counsel, Sabina Takar, and by CAOC member Ben Simino, who's a partner at Singleton Schreiber in San Diego. Welcome to you both. Thanks, JG. Now, Sabina, how do CAOC members give us ideas about possible legislation and what happens when they do? So every year at convention in November, we've always solicited ideas from our membership to say, you know, you are ears on the ground. Please tell us what's going on in your practices, what's going on in the courts, like what can we do at COC proactively to give more rights to consumers, to stop potential pitfalls, those type of things. So we always solicit suggestions normally in the fall, September, October, compile those suggestions together and then bring them to our legislative committees for a vote. So, Ben, what was the um, problem that led you to approach the AOC about the issue that became SB 652? Um, I, I came across a Klein v. Zimmer decision, uh, the Court of Appeal decision out of the Second District, and um, I was quite alarmed when I read it and immediately saw that it would have pretty far-reaching ramifications for plaintiffs uh, in a variety of, of cases. And I dealt with some of those issues previously and, and knew how significant they would be and Typically, the plaintiffs would come out on top of this question of um, whether or not the defense expert could present mere possibilities uh, of causation as opposed to something beyond a reasonable degree of medical certainty. And I knew this was immediately going to be a paradigm shift in how courts were going to approach that. And it was going to be very bad for consumers. Um, And um, when I saw that, I reached out to people that I trust and said, you know, am I being a little bit um, excitable here or is this really as bad as I think it is? And I consistently got people's impressions were the same as mine. And that's when I um, followed through that that procedure to submit something to CAOC. So Klein v. Zimmer actually established different levels for plaintiffs, expert witnesses and defense expert witnesses. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it, it held the plaintiffs to the standard, uh, plaintiffs expert to the standard that um, they'd have to show a reasonable degree of medical certainty or a reasonable degree of medical probability to establish a causal nexus between the defendant's conduct and the plaintiff's injury. But it said that defense experts don't have to meet that same burden, that, that they have a lesser burden and that mere possibilities could um, could be sufficient. So um, it kind of opens up a Pandora's box of anything in the plaintiff's history, medical history that might possibly explain their symptoms or their injuries, but without having to say more likely than not, it was a factor. And and so it just put the two sides on dramatically different playing fields. Mm. So Savina, once Ben came to CAOC with this problem, how did it get turned into legislation? It was actually really interesting because Ben was on top of it. The case came out, it was decided May 26th of last year and the convention. And we were looking at suggestions around September, October. So Ben suggested it. Um, Chris Dolan also independently suggested it. So we got two separate suggestions and I'm like, okay, let's look at this case, put it in the memo. Everyone presented their ideas. They're voted on, on a zoom meeting. And then we also discussed them at the convention in person meeting and like the show of hands that went up, it was basically the entire room, right? Ben, that was like, yes, we're concerned about this. 
So it's, it's helpful and to have that flag because while some folks, you know, see that and think like, let's see how this case works out, or maybe they're not giving it too much thought yet because it literally just came out in May. It's helpful that some of our leaders like Ben and Chris had the foresight to think like, let's address this quickly. Okay. So the decision is made to go ahead and try to do something about this issue. What happens after that? Yes. So the, basically the membership voted that this is the number one priority from membership. And then COC looks at these suggestions. We can't just blindly pick and choose, you know, even if it's the top priority to go ahead with a bill idea, it really, there's strategic decisions that go behind it. Like, is this a good outward facing issue for COC? Is this something that's righteous? Is this something consumer facing? Politically, is this something we can accomplish? And for this bill, that was the biggest um, hurdle we had to discuss because this case seemed like such a windfall to you know, the defendants and that their, their standard was intact, but ours, you know, was much higher, right. Or their standard was lower and ours was much higher. So we were concerned like, okay, is the whole universe going to come against us because this is a medical malpractice case, but it was being applied in other tort instances, right, Ben? Right. So we're worried about it expanding, which at the same time means that the population of folks that like it is expanding too. And when bills like this are very legal um, and evidence-based and specific and niche, we have a hard time with authors in the legislature because unfortunately, there are not that many lawyers in the Capitol anymore. Fortunately, unfortunately, it's good to have a diverse perspective. But for us, you know, we don't have too many champions that understand our issues and understand the nuances of evidence. So we strategically, the executive committee meets, it was in around December, decided like, we definitely want to pursue this bill. It's been a priority for membership. How do we go about this? What's the best approach? And immediately Senator Umberg came to mind, given that he is the chair of Senate Judiciary Committee. He currently practices, he would automatically get it. And he's also, you know, not, um, he has his own independent thinking about these types of things. So if we could get we knew that that would be, you know, a path to getting the bill and getting other votes because he's not always the easiest vote to get. So we could basically convince him, you know, we could convince others. <laughs> and it took a process given that the bill is complex. The case just came out. You know, we had to explain review had been denied. The law is final. And so thankfully, he ultimately came around and agreed to carry the bill. And that was really the start of it. And it wasn't just CAOC that was advocating for this uh, change uh, that's provided in this bill, correct? It was just CAOC. So often um, we try to have other allies and supporters, co-sponsors. This bill is so core to the plaintiff's bar that mm -hmm. it really was just us. You know, the Brain Injury Association, we got them in support, but that was the only supporter that we could get. Mm -hmm. So talk me through the process of how this idea of a bill winds up becoming signed into law. Sure. So we worked with um, Ben and Chris and our executive committee. That was essentially our client team. So that large group. And we drafted the bill language together, ran through it with folks, try to make it as simple as possible, but also get at the issue we're trying to get at. We also didn't want to call out the Klein v. Zimmer case because often the legislature doesn't want to just have a line that says we're overruling X, Y, and Z. You want to explain what standard you're trying to put into the law. So the drafting took some time. We introduced the bill. It went to the Judiciary Committees. So it went to the Senate Judiciary Committee and to the Senate floor, Assembly Judiciary Committee, the floor and the governor. And uh, we, in Senate Judiciary, we ended up working with the Defense Council because they saw the bill, obviously flagged it. And um, 
surprisingly, one of their concerns was something that we had already discussed before introduction, Ben, about the, you know, what if you can't reach a reasonable degree of probability? So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that was um, something that if you if you actually look at the origins of this concept, I think it, it traces back to a First Circuit decision uh, titled Wilder, um, which on the face of it, that case actually makes a lot of sense. And it sort of said, look, you know, if 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 a um, if it's just not possible based on the state of the science to establish a causal nexus between the defendant's injury, I'm sorry, the defendant's conduct and the plaintiff's injury, you know, that's something that the defense should be able to bring out. Um, they shouldn't have to point to some alternative cause if, in fact, it's just simply a case where causation can't be proven. And that's that's a fair enough concept. Um, but what, what happened is it sort of became a game of telephone where that original concept, which is reasonable on its face, became this basis to say that defendants could just introduce any possible cause um, as an alternative. And, and it just went too far. So, you know, that concept just resonated with me um, just sort of as a, as a fundamental um simple idea that I think is reasonable and is consistent with the purpose of trials, which is to find the truth. So when the defense came to that and said, look, we just, we were okay with this. We just really want this piece to be able to say, based on the facts, based on the science, you cannot prove causation in this case. Um, that seemed like a very reasonable uh, accommodation, frankly. And so, you know, we looked at each other and just said, well, you know, if that's it, um, we're, we're good. And, um, and, and that's, sort of how that came about. Yeah. So it's subdivision B in the bill for folks that are looking at the bill while they listen to this that says um, subdivision A, which is the standard that we put into law, does not preclude a witness from testifying as an expert, does not preclude a witness testifying as an expert from testifying that a matter cannot meet a reasonable degree of probability. So it's just exactly what Ben just said. And we have COC, we have really good relationships with our um, defense counsel counterparts. Mike Bullock specifically is a lobbyist for them. We've worked with for years. We often do bills with CDC as like co-sponsors for agreeable civil procedure issues. So we spoke with Mike, met with their their lawyers, you know, offline before, you know, we had opposition letters come out and that type of thing because we really wanted to work collectively on this bill before folks kind of get in their corners, because once you get in those kind of opposition positions, then it's tougher to remove opposition versus just working with them from the out front. So the bill as introduced was amended after the defense council brought this up and then wound up being passed by both houses of the legislature signed into law by Governor Newsom. But it doesn't a little bit take more a of a hiccup there, though, before oh, we went let's hear that. that. Yeah. So that was in the Senate with the Defense Council amend. And then in the Assembly, the Judicial Council came up with concerns, thinking that our standard was too broad, like how would it apply in family law cases? How would it apply in criminal cases? So this is when it's helpful that stakeholders will weigh in and look look at your bill with some scrutiny to make sure, because we don't want to apply the bill to criminal cases. Like we're talking about our universe. And for us scientific experts, like it's hard to See the nexus between scientific experts and family law or the employment lawyers also raised a concern about, you know, experts that they bring in their cases about just pattern and practice of wage theft. You know, those folks can't say to a reasonable degree of probability an African-American man will be paid less. You know, it's 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 more of a pattern and practice versus scientific quantification. 
So we had to work through all those issues, but it gets messy because then you've got, you know, our client team at COC, you've got the defense counsel who we still have to keep, you know, in the loop on things because we've made agreements with them. The judicial counsel, who's, you know, a large entity and they're not, you know, they've got their processes to work through. And then also the Employment Lawyers Association. So we were doing all this work behind the scenes. Like if you look at the legislative analysis, you won't see obviously all these negotiations in the print, but it was meeting after meeting after meeting and trying to make sure we got this language right. And that happened actually after the Judiciary Committee, but before the floor. So that's a lot of activity behind the scenes to try to get this across the goal line. Quite a bit, yes. And who all was involved in that, Sabina? So um, Nancy Drabble worked with me on this bill. At COC, we kind of give one person a first chair, if you want to go on it, like a trial, first chair and second chair. So I was first chair on this bill and Nancy Drabble was my second. And we worked, of course, with Ben and Chris Dolan and the client team. Greg Rizzio was heavily involved in this bill since the start. Um, he was in our meetings with Senator Umberg trying to explain these issues from the outset. So we we had a lot of great minds working on this bill. So once the language all got settled, uh, you got through both houses of the legislature without any problem at that point, right? Yes. And we always check with the governor's office, too, as these bills are moving forward, because you don't want to send the governor something that he has a problem with. You want to fix it before it gets to the governor. So mm -hmm. we have been continuously talking to his team. And then by the time it got to him, we were you know, anxiously awaiting a signature because you just never know. And we're thankful that it was signed and it's signed early because the session's still going on. So right. getting this bill out, you know, in July was just shocking for us. We thought this was going to be the hardest bill that we were going to have this year. Huge fight against everyone in the universe and all the corporate defendants. But, you know, thankfully, you know, with all the behind the scenes work, we were able to keep the ball rolling and get this done. So the bill was signed, but that doesn't mean it's law just yet, correct? Exactly. Yeah. To have a bill go into effect right when it's signed, it has to be an urgency measure. And that means it has to have a two thirds vote. And that would have just complicated things. So and it makes a whole different process. And, they, and also the legislature doesn't tend to do that often. It's more of an exception. Like you have to have a, a real need to do that immediately. Like the bill we did this year on remote access to the courts, the current statute was expiring. So that's why we had an urgency bill. So without that mm -hmm. kind of notice, you don't really do those. So now this bill goes into effect with all of the other bills, January 1. So Ben, do you have any tips for our members as to what they should do until SB 652 takes effect? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think actually the answer probably lies in client itself. Um, unfortunately, I'm not aware of any appellate decisions that directly contradict client because um, if so, then you'd have an opportunity to um, suggest to the trial court that it should pick between the two competing appellate decisions. That's sort of how stare decisis works in California somewhat oddly. Um, but I don't think there is a, a directly contrary case that would allow for that opportunity. Maybe I'm mistaken, but last I checked, it was not. Um, so that really brings you back to client itself. And, and it was sort of a make weight in the opinion. I, I didn't find it particularly persuasive, but it kind of said, you know, to the plaintiffs who are bemoaning this and saying that the sky is falling, you know, this doesn't mean that anything goes and that traditional rules of um, excluding stuff that's speculative or that lacks um, a sufficient reliable basis in science or that it is more prejudicial than probative, sort of these traditional tools to keep evidence out. Um, that those still apply. And so um, to my my friends and colleagues out there that are uh, toiling uh, at trial in the however many months we have until this becomes law, 
Um, I would say, you know, go back to the client decision and, and rely on that language and emphasize the, the frailties with the evidence that you would cite in any other circumstance, if, if it's speculative or if it doesn't have a sound scientific basis or if it's uh, more prejudicial than probative because, for example, it's going to invite jury speculation. So, um, you know, we've, we've only got a little bit longer before we don't have to worry about that anymore. But um, it's still, there there are some uh, arrows in the quiver to get around this in the meantime. But come 2024, we don't have to worry about it anymore. That's right. Just to add, you know, when we were going to membership, um, Jason Argos with the executive committee brought up the example that's just terrible and shows how egregious, like, you know, how far people are taking Klein about a nursing home a neglect case nursing elder abuse and neglect case, this woman um, fell, had a brain bleed, died in the patio or balcony or something in the nursing home on fell in cement. And the defense expert testified in his deposition that a bird could have flown in her face and caused her to fall. Therefore, the nursing home was not at fault. Like this is in an actual deposition. So it just shows you how far folks are going and how far they are pushing it. A bird could have flown into her face. Nobody talked about an actual bird. It's yeah. possible. So it, like to Ben's point, you know, it's not purely speculative. It's birds do fly. So it's hard to, <laughs> they couldn't get that out in the deposition. Hopefully in trial that wouldn't stand, but with Klein, you wouldn't want the defense making this type of argument. Mm. Well, CAOC's annual convention is coming up in November in San Francisco. That'll give our members a chance to learn more about SB 652. Isn't that right, Savina? Yes. There will be a panel on this and other new laws that are enacted. And then that's also kind of the trigger to talk about legislative ideas for next year. Yes, even before then, around September, October, once we wrap up this session, we've still got, you know, a big priority bill we're trying to get passed right now. I just got back from the Capitol, actually, about a couple minutes ago before this <laughs> podcast. But um, in September, we'll be looking at and soliciting more ideas. So we really, you know, invite our membership to give it some thought, you know, be creative, you know, don't worry that, you know, your idea is a bad idea, just throw it out there. Even some like we've had some civil procedure changes suggested in the past on like 998s or things that seem like not, you know, too simple, but they actually turn out to be huge problems when you raise it to mm. the large group and then folks are raising their hands saying, oh yeah, I've experienced this issue. So I'd say no problem is too big or too small. Like, please, you know, submit it and let everyone evaluate it. Before we sign off, one thing I, I did want to add um, beyond just the substance of this bill is just using this as an example of how effective CAOC is as an organization and people like Sabina and Nancy in particular um, I mean, it, it's really hard to think of a better example of responsiveness to the membership and their concerns than the way this bill came about so fast um, and so successfully. And it just goes to show this organization really does represent its members' interests and does right by consumers. Um, and and it also, I think, illustrates nicely our, our political system and democracy in action. You hear about, you know, writing your congressperson and, and getting changed that way. And it's sort of a throwaway line when courts are not really interested in delivering the result that probably should be delivered. And this is an illustration that actually democracy does work and organizations like CAOC and the people like Savina make that possible. So um, I just wanted to make sure we identified that before we signed off. Well, thank you, Ben. We can only do what we do because of you and all our membership and all the great work that CAOC members do protecting consumers every day. Uh, Sabina Takar is CAOC's Senior Legislative Counsel. Ben Simino, the CAOC members, joined us as well. Congratulations to both of you, and thanks for an interesting conversation. Thanks, JG. Appreciate it. 
And that does it for this edition of Just Us for Justice from Consumer Attorneys of California, produced by Cutter Hicks. I'm J.G. Preston. We'll see you next time. 